I have a confession to make this morning. I love Christmas music. All of it. Jingle bells, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, it's reindeer, and even, you know, da-da-da-da, eon, eon, it's Dominic the donkey. That one might be my favorite. Now, I'll, I'll admit there are a couple songs that aren't great. In, in my opinion, some of you are going to be really offended, like I could do without uh, Mary Did You Know, some gasps. I could do without the little drummer boy. But there are others that kind of we sing that conceal this just great theological depth. They have these deep promises of God embedded within. I think perhaps my favorite is Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Let me read to you some of the lyrics. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Joyful all ye nations rise, join the triumph of the skies with angelic hosts proclaim, Christ is born in Bethlehem. Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord, late in time behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace, hail the Son of Righteousness, light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings, mild he lays his glory by. Born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. So much wonderful truth. The gospel in a song. And it's a song that plays in our malls and in uh, other retail outlets during this time of year. It's it's wonderful. And yet this, this truth seems to go unnoticed by people. And even by many of us as we recite the familiar lyrics year after year, and never really meditate on the truth that they are proclaiming. One particular truth I want to draw your attention to this morning is that it's a stanza in music, right? Stanza? Right, stanza, we're going to go with that. Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord, late in time behold him come. And here's the part. Offspring of the virgin's womb, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. That that's an explosive truth. That that points us to the supreme miracle of Christianity. That God entered into his creation. That God became a man. That he was born so that we wouldn't have to die and spend an eternity In hell, a death stretched out across timelessness because of our rebellion. It's to this supreme miracle, the incarnation, God taking on flesh, that we turn our attention to this morning. The text is John chapter 1, and we're only going to make it through the first five verses. 
we're going to, to talk a little more theology this morning, like explicit, more explicitly than we usually do, but, but hang in there. I've helped you. I've given you a little diagram. It's really important truth in these first five verses, but, but I've tried to summarize the main idea for you is this, if we're just going to be really simple. Jesus is the creator and the redeemer. Jesus is our creator and redeemer. I'm going to exhort you to know God, to marvel and worship and wonder this God who has revealed himself to us in his word. And I've put it this way to stick with the theme of song this morning. The exhortation is to hail the incarnate deity, to hail, worship Jesus. We'll go through the text in three parts. We'll talk about God, God as creator, and God as light. Let's pray and we'll begin this morning. Father, we thank you for sending your Son, whom you have always loved, even before there was time, to take on flesh so that in him we might be loved because of his perfect life, substitutionary death, victorious resurrection. We thank you that in him you have loved us. In him you have brought light into our darkness. Lord, we praise you because it is wonderful to no longer be afraid of the dark. It's wonderful to have the hope of Christ, to know that the light shines and the darkness has not overcome it. It's in the name of Jesus, our hope, our light, our Savior, and our King that we pray this morning. Amen. So John is a disciple who spends uh, Jesus' entire ministry with Jesus. So it's about three years, and he walks with Jesus for three years, and then walks away believing beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is God himself. That Jesus is God in the flesh, that Jesus is worthy of worship and honor and praise. And he writes this gospel and the other books he's written in the New Testament, which if you're guessing, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, right? Revelation's the outlier. That's the tricky one. He wrote that one too, though. But he wrote all the Johns in Revelation, and he writes all of them to this end, which he makes explicit in chapter 20 of this gospel, chapter 20, verses 30 through 31. He writes, Jesus performed many other signs, in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John writes so that we might be persuaded to put our faith in Jesus, so that we might be led to fall on our faces before him together with Thomas and declare, my Lord and my God. That's why John writes. And he wants us to understand the identity of this Jesus that we're following. He wants us to understand that Jesus is both our creator and our Redeemer. And so he begins by telling us about Jesus' origins. He doesn't start like Mark does with Jesus' ministry. He doesn't start with a genealogy or the events surrounding Jesus' birth like Matthew or Luke. He starts 
in eternity past. He starts in the time before time. And he writes, in the beginning. Now, you've got you to understand, he is choosing this language on purpose. Right? You guys, we're not, we're not Jews, most of us here. But the Jewish person that reads this immediately, in the beginning, you know what comes after that, right? God created the heavens and the earth. It's Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. And so reflexively, if you're just kind of reading along, that's how you would fill in the blanks. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning was God. There was no one, nothing else. It's God's there, and then he creates. But this is what John does. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And immediately we start to scratch our heads. John, what? Come again? This doesn't quite compute. And so to untangle what John is saying, we have to answer uh, two questions. First, what or who is this word? And then secondly, how can this word be with God and also be God? There's been a whole lot of ink spilled about what this word, word means in John 1, right? Scholars spent all kinds of time figuring out uh, which Greek philosophers used this word logos, that's what's translated word, in which way. And I actually think it, that's pretty, like, I'm sure it's useful in some ways, but I think it's a colossal waste of time. Because what John is doing here is he's taking the word, word, and he's looking back to the Old Testament. He's connecting his book with Genesis and with Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. He, he wants us to see that the word through which everything was made has taken on flesh. And, and so uh, one of the ways the word works in the Old Testament is that it does stuff when we see God's word, right? And so uh, in Isaiah 55, God says, uh, My word will not return to me empty but will accomplish what I desire. In Psalm 107, when some people were ill, God sent forth his word and healed them. Or Psalm 33, 6, the heavens were made by the word of the Lord. And so what happens in the Old Testament is that God's word is personified, which makes it the perfect title to apply God's word has always revealed himself. And now we have the, the perfect revelation of God, John is saying. And it's not just John. The author of Hebrews tells us this in chapter 1, verse 1. It says, Long ago God spoke to the fathers by the prophets at different times and in different ways. In these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him, the sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. 
And so the, the question that we've tried to untangle immediately is, is what or who is the Word? And we're going, well, the Word is God. And ultimately, uh, John is going to reveal to us the Word is Jesus. I kind of snuck that in there, but, but you can see if you read along in the prologue that it's clearly Jesus. Um, explicitly, verses 14 through 18, I'm just going to read 14. Uh, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed His glory. The glory is the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the Word. He, he's God, and yet He's with God. And we go, like, just if you read the sentence this way now, knowing with that knowledge, we could read John 1, 1 and 2 this way. In the beginning was God, and God was with God. And God was God. God was with God in the beginning. And we're going, how, how does this work out? How can the word be God and be with God? How can God be with God? And all of a sudden we're going, wait a minute, God is much bigger and more complex than we ever, ever imagined. And I prepped you for this earlier. On question three, how can God be with God? Well, God is multipersonal. Question three, how many persons are there in God? That's right. Not, not great. Next time, we're, there's going to be another question. There'll be opportunity. You can step up then. There are three persons in one God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Right? And John has, has given to us the building blocks of the doctrine of what we call the Trinity. That God is one God who exists eternally in three distinct persons. But this doctrine doesn't arise out of the philosophical pontificating of really, really smart people. It rises up out of the text. The doctrine of the Trinity exists because Christians just read their Bible. And they went, the Bible teaches us that God the Father is God, that God the Holy Spirit is God, that God the Son is God, and that there's only one God. And they said, we believe it because we believe in Jesus. And this is it's a, it's a dazzling and difficult doctrine. It's not easily explained or entirely understood by anyone. Although sometimes I think we try to, because we like to understand and explain everything, uh, what happens is we come up with really, really bad analogies, right? And so sometimes people say, well, God is, is like an egg. You got like the shell part, and then you got like the white part. It's the white of an egg. Is, that's what that's called. I don't, I don't know. Uh, and then the, then the yolk part. And that's what God is like. Actually, that's a really bad analogy. God's not like that. Because you have three substances that aren't like one another. And so you don't really have an egg unless you have all three of them together. And so that gives us partialism, which each isn't really fully God. Or, maybe worse, tritheism, which gives us just three different gods. And so the, what the Bible teaches, you can't just add God up and say, uh, the Spirit's God, the Son's God, God the Father's God, that, and three gods. That doesn't work. Yeah, that's polytheism. Not a great analogy. Or uh, another one, if I say to you, um, so I am a father to... Elliot, a husband to Chelsea, and a son of my father. And so, well, God is like that, right? He's, he just kind of puts on these different masks, plays these different roles as just, just one person. No, 
the persons of the Trinity interact with one another. I mean, this is really easily seen at Jesus' baptism. They, they are one, and yet they are distinct. The same error, this, this, this is um, the, the father-son thing is called modalism. Uh, I had one author, wrote, he called it moodalism, right? Where, where God just puts on whatever mask he wants according to his mood. Right? So another analogy that would illustrate that, you maybe you've heard, is that the, the Trinity or, or God is like water. Right? It can take on the form of a solid, a liquid, or a gas. What this does is it, it blends the persons of God together as if they're not distinct from one another. This isn't what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches Trinitarianism. One God who exists eternally in three distinct persons. Right, and so let's, uh, that's why we usually, usually don't use analogies because there's nothing in our world that accurately kind of tells us what God is like in and of himself. That's why we use things like the Athanasian Creed. Not the whole thing, I'll just give you a sentence. He says, we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confusing or blending their persons nor dividing their essence. One God. Three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So, so let me give you these three statements. Maybe you can't remember the creed, but you can remember these three statements. Uh, statement number one, there is one and only one God. Statement two, the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. Statement three, the Father, Son, and the Spirit are distinct from one another. Now you go, wait a minute. This does not, this does not add up. This doesn't add up. But this is, not, this is not a contradiction. This is a paradox. There's a difference. Contradiction brings things together that can't be true at the same time. Paradox brings things together that can be true, we just don't know how. Let me give you an example by giving you three different statements. And these are not spiritual statements. <laughs> Statement one. The woman has the keys to the car. The woman has the keys to the car. Statement number two. All the doors and windows are tightly locked. Statement number three. The woman gets the packages out of the car. How? She doesn't have the keys. That was statement one. I said did. I really screwed that up then. Let me edit here. Statement one, she does not have the keys. Yeah, see, that's the kind of answer that I would typically expect, right? She breaks a window to get in, drills through the door, teleportation machine. Doors and windows are locked. She does not have the keys. Thank you, Janet. Uh, no, it seems to be no way. It seems to be contradictory. Until I bring along a fourth statement, and you go, this makes perfect sense. The car is a convertible. See, the point here is that just because something doesn't seem to make sense at first doesn't mean that it doesn't make sense. There is a fourth statement that makes the Trinity completely understandable. Here's the bad news. I don't know it, and I don't know that we ever will know it. Even when we are before God in heaven, there are some things that are so big, that they can, and I know this is going to come as a shock to some of you, they can fit in God's head, but not yours. 
There, there is mystery in the infinite God of the universe. And yes, he's revealed himself to us in his word, but he hasn't revealed everything about himself. There's mystery in him, and it's not mystery that should make you nervous. Right? You shouldn't, shouldn't start, when somebody brings up the doctrine of the Trinity, you shouldn't start you know, nervously shifting from foot to another. Oh no, they've got me. And start grasping it. Well, you see, it's like an egg. It's like God's like, like water. Or, no. You can simply say, God exists eternally in three persons. as one God. And I believe it because I believe in Jesus who, who told us that this is God's word. Isn't that incredible? Like with a twinkle in your eye, you can say, this is how big and complex God is. I don't, I don't understand it all, but it makes me fall down in worship. It makes me sing holy, 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 merciful and mighty God in three persons, blessed Trinity. Or praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him all creatures here below. Praise him, all heavenly hosts. I messed up the lyrics at some point. But eventually, praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, Holy Spirit. We worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confusing or blending their persons nor dividing their essence. And so to answer our first question, who is the Word? The Word is God. Uh, The Word is a title that's going to be applied to Jesus. Jesus is God how can God be with God? God is multipersonal. Question three, here's your chance. How many persons are there in God? There are three persons in one God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, what happens at this point is some folks will come along to this and they'll go, we, we don't understand everything there's a, there is to understand about God. And we don't like what this passage says because it's, it's teaching that Jesus is God. And so what we're going to do is we're going to do some violence to the, to the Greek language here and to the rules of translation, and we're going to just we're gonna make it say what we want it to say. And so they'll come along in verse uh, 1 and 2, and there are religions that do this and follow this, and they will say, uh, what we're going to translate this, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. And, so, and then what they'll do from there is they'll go, see, Jesus is just the first and the greatest of God's creation. But, but really, God's God and Jesus is you know, created being. This text doesn't allow for that. And that's made plain by, by the rest of the testimony of Scripture, but also by verse 3. One of the best rules I can tell you about reading your Bible is just keep reading, and answers will become apparent. And they'll become apparent And so, if we just keep reading into verse 3, we see that there's no other option for this word than for him to be God, right? Verse 3, all things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. And so, if we turn to our catechism question on the back of our, our insert, I don't know if there are awards for inserts, but man, I feel like I would have won one this week. This is, this is a great, it's an all-timer. Uh, what is God? God is the creator of everyone and everything. And, and verse 3 here tells us that this word, Jesus, is the creator 
of everyone and everything. Verse, apart from him, not one thing that was created has been created. That's pretty explicit. He's not a created being. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to double and maybe even triple down here. Because in a recent survey, 73%, 73% of professing Christians agreed with the statement that Jesus is the first and greatest created being. That is heresy. It's not Christianity. So let me make it plain. Jesus has always been. There was never a time when he was not. He was always perfectly loved by the Father and the Holy Spirit in eternity past. Jesus has always existed as God the Son. He took on flesh and became the man, Jesus Christ. And so, to make it plain, we've got this box also on your insert. If we want to try to visualize what this verse teaches. And I've kind of labeled it for you. So we've labeled the whole box, everything that exists. Everything that exists. We've drawn a line down the center. And on one side, we've labeled one box, all things that never came into being. And so under there, we're going to file God, never came into being. In the other box, we're going to write all things that came into being. And instead of listing everything that's ever existed, uh, we're just going to put all created things. Now, according to John 1, 3, all created things were created by Jesus. And so, I ask you this question, and I would put it to someone who uh, tries to mess with the text of John here and deny the divinity of Jesus. Which box should we put Jesus in? The God box. He goes in the God box because he is God. Because he is God. And this is not just in John. Right? We're told this in, in Colossians chapter 1. Chapter 1, verses 15 through, through 20. Let me show it to you again. Now, this, this verse is often misunderstood uh, to actually teach that Jesus is a created being, and I don't understand how. But I want to make it plain. I want to show you. This is what we read. He, that's Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. Invisible God. <laughs> the firstborn over all creation. And so now somebody might come along and say, whoa, 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 pastor. See, told you, wrong. That Trinity thing, not right. It says right here, firstborn of creation. Jesus is a created being. Again, that, that rule of hermeneutics, right? Keep reading. But even here, just I'm just going to kind of spoil it, I guess. Firstborn over all creation. This is not a statement about Jesus' origin, but about his authority. It's not a statement about the sequence of time, but about his status as supreme. To be the firstborn, especially in this ancient culture, came with authority. Came, that was who inherited. That was who was most important. And so what we're seeing in the text is the supremacy of Jesus, not that he's created. And I know that because I keep reading into verse 16, which says, For everything was created by him. Told you in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have 
all of his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. The point here in this text is not to say that Jesus is born, but to say that he has authority over everyone and everything because he is the creator. He holds everything together. He made it and he sustains it. Like you and I might sustain a music note. Right? If I sing and I, law, as long as I sing, that law belts out into the air. This is how Jesus holds the universe together. He's the creator. He's the redeemer. Friends, if Jesus can hold the whole world together, if he, if he holds the whole world in his pierced hands, Surely you can trust him to hold your life together. Surely you can trust the God who became a baby so that he might become killable, so that he might die in your place for your sin and resurrect in glory. Surely you can trust this God with your life. Jesus is the creator. and He's also the redeemer. He's the light that comes into our darkness. The darkness that we loved and chose comes into the darkness to give us life. Look with me at verse 4. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. And yet the darkness did not overcome it, not master it. John is really a smart dude. I I love what he does here. Um, He's written his gospel, especially his prologue, with all the themes that he's going to talk about kind of put stuffed in there, okay? And so this theme of light is going to become more readily apparent to us as we read through his gospel, which tells us he means for us to read this more than once. Uh, But what he's done, it's similar to like, if you've ever read a, a whodunit novel and you get through and at the very end you're just shocked at who did it, you're like, I can't believe that that person done it. And then you read through it again and all the details stand out to you in a different way. My favorite example of this is The Sixth Sense, right? I'm going to ruin it, but, but at the end you're like, what? Bruce Willis was dead the whole time? How did I miss this? And you watch it back and you're like, I am so stupid. I, he's clearly, the kid says he sees dead people. Bruce Willis, oh my gosh, missed it. But it comes, the details come alive in new ways. And that's what John's doing here. He, he wants us to, see, to, to make the details of his gospel come alive. And what he's showing us is that he's, the light of creation, right, because he's tying everything back to Genesis, the light of creation is also the light of redemption. And so he's using this motif of light, and we think of it in Genesis as a physical thing, right? There's nothing there's creation, and then there's light. And now, it's taken on more of a moral, spiritual flavor in the Gospel of John. We are walking in darkness, right? We're walking according to the pleasures of sin. And as Isaiah says, there will come a day when the light will dawn to those who are walking in darkness, and that's, that's what's going on here. 
the light shines in the darkness. So we can picture a dark world that Jesus comes into as the light of life. This has massive implications for us and and for evangelism. If you think about um, the sun rising in the morning, it gets a little bit light and eventually the stars get chased away and that sun is in the sky and it's hard if you're outside or even in your house to recognize, like, hey, there's light all around us. What this means is that prior to God's work in us to make us understand and see the light, we have to either be blind or really in love with the darkness, which is what John 3 tells us, that people loved the darkness and hated the light. And so, so the picture we kind of have given to us, or that I'm trying to give to you, is in order for people to ignore God's revelation, it's a, it's a willful and stubborn rebellion. They're blinded or they're hiding in cellars with the curtains drawn back or closed, black out, in the darkness. And our job in evangelism is simply to come and open the curtains. Say a light has dawned. It's dawned on all of us walking in darkness. All of us who were and so in love with our dark basements. Christ has come. The light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. Jesus picks up on this theme later in John in 8.12. He says, I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in the darkness but will have light and life. John 12, 46, I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me would not remain in darkness. Remain in darkness. We, apart from the work of God, are in darkness. We are in the darkness of our chosen sin and we love it. We love our sin until we see the light. Until Christ comes. This is, this is the whole point of Christmas. So we couldn't save ourselves. We couldn't make ourselves right with God. We deserve the darkness of our sin. We, we happily chose it rather than God. We would, we would rather sing with Sinatra, I did it my way, than sing with the saints, hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. We would rather persist in rebellion than submit ourselves to the God of the universe. But Jesus came so that we might see the light. He didn't leave us in darkness. No, he, he came to save us. Love in 1 John chapter 2 says, the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Friends, there may be times in, in your life, maybe, maybe it's right now, where things seem pretty grim and pretty dark. It seems as if darkness is going to prevail. That nighttime is going to, to win out. And that you won't know what it is to be happy again. That's not the first time anyone's felt that way. It won't be the last but I'd like to point you to the cross. Where it appeared that darkness had indeed prevailed, 
as life was killed. And I'd like to, to point you to the grave where it seemed that the light had been snuffed out fully and finally. And then I would like to point you to that Sunday morning when the stone rolled away and it became clear that the light was still shining. That indeed Jesus Christ was risen from the dead. And what that means for your life, friends, is that no matter how dark it gets, there is a dawn coming. There is light shining. There is a day coming when Jesus is going to return and make everything sad untrue. There's a day coming where he's going to come and make everything right. The light shines. There is a resurrection coming, friends, and that's where our hope is. So circumstances, they, they shift and they change and things, things get hard. But the Christian can say, my hope is in God. My hope is in the light of the world. It, it might be dark now, but the sun is coming up in the morning. It's hard, but I trust my God who is good. I've seen the cross. I've seen my Savior bleed and die for me. And I've seen him rise from the dead. My faith is in him and I will be made like him. I too will rise from the dead because my God loves me. Friends, the light came into the world so that we might escape the darkness. So that we don't have to be afraid of the dark. Christmas, Christmas is the good news that we can't work our way to God, but that he has come to us. Like, do you understand the magnitude of this? We did some really kind of bigger theology at the front end. God is, is infinite. He's omnipotent. He's omniscient. He's, he, he's incredible. He's so big. And then the, the message of Christmas is that this giant, complex, beautiful, perfectly satisfied, intrinsically loving God chooses to have his love spill over to wretched sinners like you and me. And the way that he does this is by becoming one of us. Like, the gap between, if you became a worm, right, the gap between God becoming a person and you becoming a worm is infinite. Like, we, we can't get our minds around what it would be like. He, he created everything, and then he became part of his creation. God consented to swimming in amniotic fluid for nine months and having his diapers changed. Listen, these are the links that God went to in order to save you and I from our sin. These are the links God went to to save us from an eternity of death. He loves us. And so Christmas, he came to save us. He came to save us. Hark the herald angels sing glory to the newborn king. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your infinite wisdom. Thank you for uniting us with Jesus, lived a perfect life, died a substitutionary death, and rose again from the dead so that we no longer have to fear death when we put our trust in him. We thank you that we are adopted in him, 
that we know you in him, that we have relationship with one another in him, that every spiritual blessing is ours in him. We thank you that you have given to us beyond measure in him. We thank you for your grace that we only know in him. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.